Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for July 2nd. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk about the impact of the pandemic on Arkansas's 4-H programs, and we get to know Bob Scott, the new director of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service. We also hear from the man whose shoes he will have to fill, Rick Cartwright, who retired at the end of June. And we talk to horticulture research professor Elena Garcia about her recent retirement. First, Ken Moore connects with Dr. Bob Scott, who begins his term as the new director of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture Cooperative Extension Service this week. Scott most recently worked as director of the Rice Research and Extension Center in Stuttgart. In this conversation, he shares what it means to him to lead the Extension Service and his goals for fulfilling its mission to support Arkansas agriculture and youth. On this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I have the uh, pleasure of speaking with Dr. Bob Scott. Dr. Scott uh, was recently named the director of Arkansas's Cooperative Extension Service for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. He is succeeding Dr. Rick Cartwright, who is retiring at the end of the month and assumes his new position effective July the 1st. Uh, Dr. Scott, thanks for being with us on this edition of AgCast, and uh, congratulations on your new uh, position here. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've had a lot of folks congratulating me, and I'm overwhelmed. I I really appreciate that. Uh, Just for a little background uh, for the benefit of our listeners, tell us about your tenure uh, and the path you've taken with the uh, Division of Agriculture. I know you uh, joined the faculty there uh, as a wheat scientist, I believe, uh, and in other roles back in the uh, late 90s. Actually, uh, in the late 90s, I worked uh, in industry uh, for American Cyanamid and BASF as a tech service rep in 2002. I... uh, Took over for Dr. Ford Baldwin as extension weed scientist, working out out there at Lone Oak, um, out of that office, and I did that from 2002 um, until 2018. All right. Well, uh, as a weed scientist, you and your colleagues have had a lot of challenges uh, supporting <laughs> our row crop industry and others. Uh, just kind of briefly talk about how that prepared you for for the role. I know in uh, 2018, you also had a, a little different role that you assumed uh, before you became, or before you will assume this new position of Extension Service Director next week. But uh, talk about how that prepared you for this. Yeah. Um, well, during my tenure as Extension Lead Scientist, you know, I've I've done all the extension outreach things that you do as a as a program specialist and worked with county agents and. And growers, most of my career um, has been spent dealing with herbicide-resistant weeds of one form or another. Um, later on in my career, early on it was rice, uh, weeds and rice, but, but later on, um, obviously, it became Roundup-resistant weeds and then um, uh, resistance to other classes of chemistry. Um, and just putting together programs and educational components on that. Um, toward the end of my stay with Extension in 2015, 16, 17, I also started managing two Extension centers, one at Lone Oak and one at Newport, which gave me a lot of experience, um, kind of got my feet under me as a, as a manager. And then in 2018, I took over as director of the Rice Research and Extension Center at Stuttgart, 
and that's really where I've been able to hone a lot of my management skills. Uh, it's our probably our premier ag station right now in the state. We've got three rice breeders there. Um, and I've really been able to focus more on learning the ag experiment station side um, as well as the people management side for, for the last two years. So I, had a, I have a pretty good background coming into this position. As we know, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic has just changed everything we do. Uh, the way we work, uh, the way we relate to people, the way you can connect with our growers uh, here in Arkansas. Uh, talk about the challenges that uh, the pandemic has created for you and your colleagues uh, within the Extension Service. Uh, working from home, doing a lot more Zoom meetings instead of in-person face-to-face meetings. Uh, how are you overcoming those challenges? Um, it has been a challenge. Uh, we, like everyone else, have had to, uh, had to adjust and, uh, and get used to trying to look good on a computer monitor for, for a bunch of Zoom meetings all day. Um, but I think more importantly than that, for the extension service, we, we've had to um, adapt to redefine our, our, uh, our mission a little bit and redefine our, the way we go about fulfilling our mission. Um, I think the extension service has done a good job with that, um, and you know it, it took a few days, a few weeks for us to get our feet under us, uh, much like it did everybody else. But um, you know we've had to educate ourselves, and we've also had a COVID-19 outreach and educational effort to the public. So um, I'm pretty happy with the extension service's response. I think it's what's expected of us uh, to be leaders. Uh, both in how we conduct our own business and uh, and how we educate the public about COVID-19. So um, we've had to do some some fast thinking and some shuffling around, but um, we're we're sort of surviving it like everybody else right now. Yes, you are. Uh, in this new role, what uh, I guess before I ask that question, first of all. For the benefit of those who are not familiar, I mean, we work hand in glove with the Cooperative Extension Service all the time, every day, with the county agents out in the field, uh, assisting them, and they assist us in serving our farmers and ranchers. But uh, if you can kind of put in a nutshell, what's the role of the Cooperative Extension Service? I know it's more than just uh, uh, support for the farmers and ranchers. I mean, you have the Extension Homemakers, you have all of them, and 4-H. It's a it's a really excellent educational program as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, we are the outreach or extension branch of the University of Arkansas. So historically, our job has been to take the research data and all the things that come out of the university and apply those to the public and educate um, the public. Most of us know us for agriculture um, through the county office system and also in our youth education efforts through 4-H. Um, but we also have very active um, efforts in community and rural development, as well as family consumer science, um, which is home, the old home economics. Um, so we have, we have four major outreach areas, and our mission is simply to educate uh, in those areas using uh, science-based information and sound recommendations for folks um, to hopefully help make life better. It used to be focused on rural, um, but today uh, the modern extension service is really focused on communities uh, more than just rural communities. 
Well said. Thank you so much for explaining that. Now, going forward in the balance of this year and looking ahead into 2021, uh, under the uh, challenges that we are facing, and it looks like uh, the pandemic is not going to ease up really anytime soon. We continue to read about and learn about uh, new people being diagnosed with it. Uh, We're still going to have to continue to social distance, it looks like, for the balance of the year. Uh, Large in-person meetings will probably not be advisable, if allowed at all. So how does that affect the work you'll do as you begin your new role on July the 1st as Director of the Extension Service as we approach harvest season for our row crops, as you work with our livestock producers, uh, as your agents in the field continue their work? uh, How do you see the rest of the year playing out? Well, I think we're going to have to continue with our social distancing. We're going to have to continue to adapt um, and try to fulfill our mission uh, to the best of our ability under these circumstances. So I I see us probably continuing like this for a while. Um, We will continue to operate under the best sound science uh, policy that we can. Uh, We'll also follow the lead uh, of the governor. Um, and his uh, Department of Health folks as as far as how we proceed. We're in a status right now of being somewhat back back in our offices and back to business. Um, the state office is still closed. There's some issues there that we're having to work through with our air conditioning and air circulation system that is making it a little more difficult to open that office, but some of our county offices are open. Um, so we will ease back into this as uh, as our best science and best recommendations allow us to. But in the meantime, regardless of that, you know, we're going to stay focused on the mission of extension and just fulfilling that in every way we can during this crisis. And that's going to include uh, recommendations uh, continuing to come out for how folks can handle uh, this time until we can find a cure or find a vaccine or find some social uh, practices that will help eliminate the, the virus from the U.S. Are your county agents and others on the faculty there with the Division of Agriculture, are you finding uh, a good number of farmers and ranchers participating in these Zoom calls or uh, online meetings uh, because they're accustomed just to meeting with you in person? Are you getting good participation there? Overall, we have, I think, gotten pretty good participation. Our web content is up and out. I think it's something that we can do better. Um, It's going to be a goal of mine going forward to um, probably increase our web content and our accessible information. I think a lot of people get their information that way these days, especially the younger generation. A lot of them would rather click on a link, listen to a podcast, watch a video, um, maybe do an online training or something. They would rather do that than than, than attend a big meeting somewhere. So, you know, we're going to have to we're going to have to kind of fill that out and adapt as we go on that. Um, but but we're gonna, we have a few events coming up that are really going to give us a good indication of of how much we're able to do outreach. Uh, we've got some virtual field days coming up. Um, and some other online things going on that are going to give us some numbers. We've already got a few, but but I think over the summer we're going to have a much better idea of how well we respond to that. And then obviously going into county meeting time um, next spring, depending on the situation and where we're at with this virus, you know, we may be looking at doing county meetings online. 
But one of the things that we've observed, um, you know, if you look at the numbers of people who attend um, these meetings, it's really not that hard to get that many people on a webinar or a Zoom meeting or something. And so, you know, contact is a contact as far as I'm concerned, whether they're sitting in the room or sitting on a Zoom. So, um, so far I'd say we've had pretty good response, but I think we've got a few big tests coming up this summer. Well, let's just hope we have a good uh, harvest season. I know the planting season was another big challenge for our row crop farmers in particular, and I've even talked to some uh, specialty crop producers where the excessive rainfall back in the spring has even cut into our peach crop that we're harvesting right now uh, and other uh, commodities that we grow here in Arkansas. We're just hoping that we have favorable weather from here on out through the rest of the summer. Uh, can you believe two years in a row with all this rainfall? It, it's kind of unprecedented. It, it's very unprecedented. Um, I heard some of our specialists this spring get up and give talks and say, you know, it started raining last year about this time and it, it hadn't stopped yet. And uh, I, I can't, I can't believe how wet it's been. We were lucky in the Grand Prairie around Stuttgart, where I'm at. Um, everybody had a window to plant. They've had a couple of windows to plant, and things look pretty good. But I know in northeast Arkansas, my, my former home part of the state, um, that those guys have suffered because of this, this rainfall and the wet weather has been pretty rough. Um, there's not a lot we can do about that um, and just, just hope for better <laughs> better conditions next year. You bet. You bet. Well, listen, Dr. Scott, congratulations again on uh, – your new position as director of the uh, Cooperative Extension Service, and uh, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time and look forward to working with you throughout the rest of the year. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity, and I look forward to working with you guys too. Been speaking to Dr. Bob Scott, as I just said, the uh, new newly appointed director of Arkansas's Cooperative Extension Service, succeeding Dr. Rick Cartwright, who is retiring at the end of this month, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next, Keith Sutton talks to Scott's predecessor at the Extension Service, Dr. Rick Cartwright, who retired this week after a decades-long career with the University of Arkansas. He shared some highlights from that career and his thoughts on the role Extension plays in today's world. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and today I am visiting with Dr. Rick Cartwright, who just yesterday on June 30th, uh, retired after a long and illustrious career with the University of Arkansas. Congratulations, Dr. Cartwright. Thank you, Keith. We uh, we want to share uh, some things with our listeners this week about uh, your career uh, here in Arkansas. You, uh, you started back in college uh, earning a bachelor and master's degree at the University of Arkansas, and then you went on to get a PhD in plant pathology at University of California, Davis. And then in 1992, you came back to Arkansas and began your career with the Division of Agriculture. I hope I got all that right. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of your best memories of those early years when you uh, first came back from California to Arkansas and began working uh, with the university. Keith, uh, my memories uh, kind of always revolve first around uh, people. Um, 
and uh, you know when you work in agriculture and agricultural sciences and research and extension stuff it's really all about relationships and people uh, bottom line and the people of uh, agriculture in particular are uh, you know have I have some of the strongest memories because they're such uh, salt of the earth um, um, really all uh, lifelong learners and lifelong teachers uh, as you work through uh, this kind of thing. 1992 came back uh, with Dr. George Templeton, worked with him, and uh, and that's a that's a really strong memory because uh, Dr. Templeton was one of the finest scientists that. Uh, the division and the university ever had. Uh, he was also a plant pathologist, but uh, he did a lot of interesting things in his lifetime, including discovering the first uh, kind of practical biocontrol agent for weeds and rice. And um, so I worked with him on uh, started on rice diseases. He he piqued my interest in kernel smut and smut diseases of rice, which uh, became a problem uh, off and on during everybody's career. And uh, anyway, these memories, um, because I was a field uh, scientist, I spent an awful lot of time with farmers and county agents and consultants and industry people. Um, there was a, and I, and I, I love being in the field. Uh, that was my cup of tea. So, uh, I, I spent a tremendous amount of time in the fields of eastern Arkansas trying to learn everything I could about uh, not only the way rice was produced, but some of the challenges of getting the production more stable and higher yielding. You know, when I trained in California, the yields there, because it's, a, it's such a different environment for rice production, the yields there were... Um, almost always over 200 dry bushels in those fields. And and we certainly wanted to see that in the Mid-South, even though there's a lot of lot more constraints here on production than there was out there in that environment. But uh, during my career, uh, one of my strong memories is working with farmers that uh, did achieve those kind of yields over time. And it's very interesting to watch. Um, you uh, you eventually uh, moved into more of an administrative role, I guess you could say. Did you uh, did you ever regret doing that? You're you're internationally recognized for your work with rice and rice pathology, but you're also a very good administrator. Uh, did did that uh, ever lead you to wish you to stay down in the field? Um, you know, I have a kind of a funny, I, I hate to say this, but I have kind of a, uh, a little bit of a different personality about stuff like this. Uh, my dad, uh, would tell people and my mom that I was kind of like a goose because I, you know, I kind of, <laughs> I'd wake up every day, every day in a new world and I just, I just go forward, and I, I always struggled with uh, kind of looking behind me, uh, even though I, I, you know, I tried to. But 
So that, in to answer that question, uh, I guess in some aspects, I always miss the field part of the field science of pathology. It's just, it's just such an interesting profession, and, and rice is uh, uh, such an interesting plant and crop. And the rice farmers are, <clears throat> and and the people that work in rice are just uh, also extremely uh, fascinating. So I, yeah, I missed some of that, I guess, but I really enjoyed my administrative career because um, I got to work um, real strongly with uh, people within the division of ag and the best people on earth, but also. Uh, uh, people in different areas of um, uh, important stuff like uh, communities, uh, community development, economic development, uh, 4-H, uh, the family and consumer science stuff, which was has got to be the most complicated uh, profession that I've run across of trying to get people to uh, understand and make good decisions um, in that area. Um, probably, so I guess I missed some of the previous career, but I really kept very busy and enjoyed immensely my administrative role as well. And I like to say, I got to work with best people on earth with Dr. Cochran and uh, Dr. Mullinay and DQ Field now. And before them, Tony Wyndham and Dr. Lim and uh, Clarence Watson and Rick Rader and all those kind of guys. Uh, they really give a lot to lead that organization, and I just enjoy them immensely. Well, you mentioned Dr. Cochran. Let me, if you would, I'd like to read something that Dr. Cochran said about you in a recent press release announcing your retirement. He said, Dr. Cartwright has been an inspiration, a voice of reason, and a staunch advocate for the role of extension in improving lives in Arkansas. He leaves a strong legacy and a lasting impact on the state, Arkansas agriculture, and our organization. He has touched so many lives, including colleagues in the division, students, farmers, and other stakeholders. Now, how does that make you feel when you hear those words from somebody you look up to as well? Well, you know, uh, um, I have immense respect for Mark Cochran, and uh, and working with him day to day was uh, uh, was a real um, enjoyable learning experience. Cause he's a brilliant person, and uh, and for him to say that kind of stuff is very meaningful. Um, but uh, you know, I'm a very humble person, Keith. So you know, I don't. I don't I don't know how I take it, but but I do appreciate him and his leadership and all of those that worked in in the, the roles they did because uh, you know you can I know that you know people I know that people uh, you know I got some credit for this and that but the truth is uh, anybody that works very long in a career of any kind. Uh, you got to recognize that you really don't get much done by yourself. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, you're a part of an organization or a team. And, 
and it, it really gets done by people working together. And that's why I said that in this business of education and research and all that extension, it's about relationships, um, mutual respect, kind of that give and take of learning that, uh, that really is where things get done. And so whatever achievements I may have had is really the result of an awful lot of people pulling together, to be honest. Well, if you look back, what are some of the things you're the most proud to tell other people you had a role in during your career? If you could pick two or three things, what are some of those things that you consider your biggest accomplishments during your career? Well, uh, you know, it's 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 hard to um, for me to think. Uh, very specifically sometimes, but some things that uh, I guess I got a lot out of um, was was working uh, on the uh, what one aspect was trying to bring an understanding about rice problems um, to the people and, and get them to use that understanding to better their their rice production and stuff. So from a practical standpoint as a pathologist, which you're really just a plant doctor in a way, you want to see healthy plants, healthy uh, production systems, and and by way of a result, a healthy uh, farm and, and farm economy, because uh, everything kind of depends on that plant being um, able to achieve its potential. So, um, so part of that was I worked uh, real closely with Jim Franks and Steve Harrison and Dave Black and and uh, colleagues like Don Grove um, and Chuck Rush and Fleet Lee in rice pathology, and we all kind of uh, did the lifting to bring uh, to help bring. Um, azoxystrobin fungicide into uh, the production systems of the United States for our rice. And this is a, uh, and this is very interesting uh, material and it's a good example of how industry and universities can uh, work together uh, for the common good. But we, we took that uh, from the very beginning and worked it up through field testing and it's really the first fungicide I worked with that had a market effect on the crop and on the disease with just casual use. I mean, I've been around, you know, my whole career was around fungicides and fungicide chemistry, but this one was different. And when we first uh, started applying it in larger uh, strips and uh, Steve and Dave and I and all and Fleet and everybody, we, you know, you go out there and you could see the effect, and that was that was kind of novel to all of us. We were so we were running around pretty excited. So one of the things, one of the things I'm probably most proud of is just being a part of um, the, uh, I guess, the implementation and adoption of of modern um, disease control. In, in rice because it was uh, 
up until that point we had we had some fungicides but they were you know they're pretty hit or miss it seemed to me like in large scale application but this stuff just changed the whole perspective of disease management and so even though it uh, may sound like a commercial i'm just i'm just i'm just mentioning it because it was a real revelation because up to that point uh when we talk about managing diseases with with a uh a therapeutic agent uh we didn't have a very good thing um up until that that class of chemistry was discovered and so that was one another was that uh, we worked out together and I'll give Keith Griggs um with, who was another person in industry um Charlie Parsons and Jeremy Ross Quentin Hornsby those kind of guys worked with me closely on rice, we stumbled across the effect of an older fungicide on controlling kernel smut in rice. And with, with consultants like Johnny Wheatley and Jason McGee and Rick Thompson, the uh, county agent, we were able to, uh, uh, and the late Carl Hayden, we were able to show that we could clean up a lot of smut problems with proper application of that. So that was a great, great thing to... Uh, to witness because to that point, uh, those heading diseases like that, um, it was, they were really hard to deal with. And so that helped clean up the rice a little bit. And, and, and anyway, those are the practical aspects. If you go down into my administrative career later, I'm probably most proud of just uh, the relationship building that I was able to uh, uh, benefit from with all the the people in the division and so we we uh we really created a forward momentum the last few years in the division and in the cooperative extension service for being more 21st century for being more highly visible and uh and i just give all that credit to the employees because they uh they picked that ball up, and we talked about it when I first came came in, but uh, they picked the ball up and ran. And so if you look four, five, six years ago uh, and, and today as far as our reach and our uh, visibility, it's distinctly different. And I, I'm quite proud of our organization for taking that on because uh, we really need to be 21st century. We need to be high tech and we need to be uh, highly visible in our efforts because it's worth talking about. Well, for the last uh, two or three years, you served as director of the Cooperative Extension Service in Arkansas. Today, with so many things in our world changing almost day to day, what role do you think extension plays now in that evolving environment? Yeah, this is a a, a good question because uh, you know the land, as the cooperative extension service goes, thus goes the land grant universities and public universities in the United States. So I could ask the same question is what role does public universities in this country play? And if you go back in time, um, you know that there was this thought at one time 
and this is in the 19th century. So, you know, we go back in time as to why why did we go down this road? Um, it, the idea was that uh, that that knowledge was really uh, a power for a society to advance, and the problem with knowledge was it was very at that time knowledge and current knowledge was very restricted to just a few people. So the idea was uh, we put we put a system of public universities across this country and uh, and the people that wanted to advance their um, knowledge and skills um, in a practical way, you know, so that's why the land-grant universities came up. They were really intended to solve problems locally um, in their state and area. And and as that evolved, uh, I think it was very clearly demonstrated that that um, useful knowledge is very powerful for common people to better their lives. But it has to be extended. It has to be demonstrated. It has to be explained in a way that everybody can understand it and use it. So um, that role still exists and is just more complex because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, sources of information today that did not exist back in those days and so we're one of those sources but we have maintained this idea that we try to extend um, you know uh, validated research-based information. As you know, if you get on the internet, which is one is a large source of quote info, a lot of it is this uh, uh, not not vetted. It's uh, it, you know you, you it's just a mixture of everything from fact to belief to rumor to uh, gossip. So we try to be, we, we're still trying to serve that role for the university and for the people that um, we, we find the, the, you know, the research-based stuff. We try to make sure people can relate to it and use it. We may demonstrate it. So that role, I think, is still very important in an age of too much information, lots of misinformation, and unfortunately, a growing um, a growing uh, font of disinformation. So we're still uh, trying to um, support the university and the uh, the experiment station system and discovering solutions, and we're still trying to get those solutions that are locally based out to people so they can better their lives. The other thing I would say, the role um, Today, that more that is of growing importance is revolves around uh, teaching young people uh, critical thinking, uh, character, um, you know, how to make good decisions. And of course, I'm talking about the 4-H program here. But I have witnessed, um, you know, the life-changing power of a of an educational program like that. Um, 
and and it's been uh, it's been very inspirational, and I think uh, the extension service still serves that role in the rural parts of the state and the country, and it's a very powerful thing to witness when you see uh, kids that are 4-H uh, that learn those those uh, soft skills. Uh, it literally changes their lives, and and we have such a lack of positive leadership today uh, worldwide that I think this this is a role that we can play, not only at the youth level but at the community level. This the other thing I've seen that's quite different today than it was in my day was the uh, the impact on rural communities. And I think cooperative extension and the division can play a role in and maybe uh, um, getting that turned around because um, you go out in the rural parts of the state, uh, uh, we're not doing too well in some of the more rural areas. And so we can uh, we can certainly help with that by bringing technology and knowledge to play and building relationships that can result in stronger communities and better economic development. The last thing I would say is today the challenges to families um, are unlike anything that I can remember. And so I think cooperative extension can really continue to play that strong role of um, family resilience, good decision making, um, try to try to teach good financial management. And then the the area of rural health is just uh, a tremendous challenge for the United States right now. So we've been heavily involved in that through grants, and I think we have uh, some people that can make some differences there. So I just uh, covered everything, but uh, to be honest, what I hear from our people, from my people, our stakeholders, is. Uh, there's been no greater time for the university, for the Division of Ag, and for Cooperative Extension um, than today. And they, and the, the, uh, everything I heard while I was working is, he, you guys need to step it up, you know. And, <laughs> we've, and we've done that through the um, this COVID thing. We've um, we made a concerted effort to educate people in uh, really in the rural part of the state about this COVID thing. And uh, I can tell you that uh, like our social media, there's been maybe a couple of million views and shares of that information it is very science-based. Um, we made, uh, our volunteers made over a hundred thousand masks and gave them away. I mean, there's a lot of educational stuff about COVID that went on the last two or three months that demonstrated, uh, you know, the power of a concerted effort of an organization like this. Well, anyway, I'll ramble on, Keith, if you let no, me. No, no. I'm glad that you have taken time with us to uh, try to condense into half an hour here a career that covered decades and I know all the people who know you and many people who don't uh, you have had immense influence on the state of Arkansas and the people here very positive influence and for that we're all very grateful I'm wondering now uh, 
what are your plans for the future? Have you have you had a chance to even think about that? You've just barely gotten retired yesterday. Um, yes, I've I've had a very detailed plan developed over the last forty four years by my new boss. <laughs> And she is uh, she has got a list a mile long, and so I've, uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm convinced that I will be uh, I will be busy in another profession, and that's working for uh, for my lovely wife Lynette. <laughs> we know you're going to enjoy that, and uh, oh yeah, we congratulate you on your retirement, and uh, I know we'll all be seeing you here and there. Sometime oh, yeah. somewhere, and uh, I appreciate you taking time to let us share all this uh, information with our Farm Bureau listeners, and uh, we'll hope to visit with you again someday. Well, you know, I'm still a member of Farm Bureau, and I, I have many friends and uh, appreciate uh, the great work of the organization, and uh, to everyone listening, I'd say if I can help you, just give me a call. Arkansas 4-H, the popular statewide leadership development organization, has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic and forced to adjust the way it reaches members and conducts its activities. Ken Moore spoke with Angie Friel, Associate Department Head for 4-H for the Cooperative Extension Service, about how they are handling their projects and reaching members online. I'm Ken Moore, and I'm visiting today with Angie Friel. Angie is the Associate Department Head for Arkansas 4-H within the Arkansas Cooperative Extension Service, which is, you know, is a uh, division of the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. Uh, Angie, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time today. Certainly. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Angie, uh, 4-H, as we know, is huge. Uh, And many, many, many of our young people are involved in 4-H all over the state and really all over the country. Uh, if you will, just kind of for those who may not know exactly the scope of 4-H, how many young people in round numbers do you think are, are involved on a yearly basis in 4-H, and how many young people are you training and, and reaching? Well, we have different types of educational opportunities for 4-Hers and through the Extension Service. Generally, uh, we have around 15,000 uh, 4-Hers who have signed up through our enrollment system that we reach each year through traditional educational experiences and several different project areas. And we also have uh, what we call school enrichment programs where we may reach anywhere from uh, 200 to 300,000 youth each year through school programs or through teachers and different educational opportunities. That's That's a a lot lot of kids. (laughs) It is a lot of young people. It is. Wow, that's fantastic. I know yeah. that uh, years ago, uh, my daughters were involved in 4-H. And, and it's really, when you think of FFA, you typically think of uh, young people from uh, rural communities and who are involved in vocational agriculture uh, within their high schools or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. 4-H reaches a lot of urban youth as well, don't they? We do. We have a lot of projects who uh, which were created to uh, – get to the youth who are in the urban areas who can't necessarily, who've never had a farm life per se, although, you know, that is our traditional uh, method is through the farms. That's how we started over a hundred years ago. But yes, we have, uh, we have one new program that comes to mind immediately for youth is the Sea Perch program, which is that one of our, we have three mission mandate areas, science, 
citizenship, and then uh, healthy living. And so Sea Perch is an underwater tethered robot. Uh, First Electric partners with us to bring that program to Arkansas. And uh, we reach so many kids, and it's growing. It's doubling every single year we're having trouble uh, finding room for everyone, but those kids in the, the in the schools that are more in the city have an opportunity to experience 4-H that way. That's just one of the first things that comes to mind for urban youth. That's great. That, that's exciting. And uh, yeah. and I know that uh, even though you may grow up in the city, a lot of parents want their children to learn about agriculture or uh, in some projects. I had a daughter that was involved in learning all about cotton. That was her special project oh, yeah. uh, when she was a young girl even though she was a city girl not raised in the you know, on a cotton right. farm by any means she learned all about it we got to drive over and visit a cotton farm and go through a gin and so it exposes young people <laughs> in the city to to a lot of what agriculture is all about sure it does it does and the the drone program too that we've implemented too that's one that's going to be really big for exposing agriculture to urban youth by showing them how we're utilizing those out in the field with our our scouts and with our agents. So, um, yeah, anything we can do to try to expose them to ag especially uh, is welcome. (laughs) Well, how has the uh, COVID-19 pandemic affected 4-H activities, uh, and and how are you adapting? I know that uh, 4-H, like all other organizations, is First and foremost, a face-to-face organization. They have their local chapters. They have their club meetings. Uh, But how are you having to uh, deal with that and and adapting to the pandemic? All right. Well, I want to start a little bit by just telling folks who might not be familiar with our structure in the extension system, how we are structured, and then I can talk about how that's affected them. Uh, We have a county agent in every single county. And so, or more than one in every county. And so when we were all sent home, uh, it really was a new world for us. Um, Sent home, I mean, we were, you know, asked to work from our our homes as much as possible. And that affected our county offices, our state offices, a lot of our ag experiment stations. And so luckily we have been, uh, we have a wonderful communications department and IT department who have trained us in some of the, uh, in Zoom and in how to utilize different technologies. I feel like we were a little bit ahead of the curve in, in not having to learn that from scratch. So that's the medium we've used most often is Zoom to try to reach our kids through uh, club meetings, which we couldn't have face-to-face club meetings for a long time, and we still are very limited on those. Uh, We couldn't, of course, go to schools. They were all closed down. And so we have come up with some really good ways to reach those families that are involved in 4-H as well as reach a lot of families who really didn't know a lot about 4-H. So it's been very exciting to watch the creativity of our county staff and our state staff come up with ways to, to just utilize the technology that we have and then find new technology that we might not have even known existed. Well, and you also have a lot of activities, a lot of uh, events, if you will, that are, uh, uh-huh. you know, that you conduct every year uh, uh-huh. in the spring and summer. And, and some of uh-huh. those have either had to be canceled or postponed. Uh, how are you adapting and, and how are those young people still able to participate in those activities uh, when they can't meet in person? All right. Uh 
we've been really concerned of reaching all of our 4-H'ers. So every year we have what's called 4-H Team Leader Conference. It's normally held at the 4-H Center out in Ferndale. But this year, obviously, we couldn't have it So face-to-face. So we still had it uh, on the same dates that we had our normal TLC um, uh, planned for. And we had almost the same amount of kids participate in that. So what happens is we have about 50 ambassadors and seven state officers who generally come together, and they were able to come together in February at their ambassador workshop to plan TLC. So they used a lot of those plans that they'd already made, but we just took them to the virtual world. We used platforms like Zoom. Flipgrid has become one of our really good platforms that we've used that have the kids really like social media, and the kids still created the content, uploaded those, and then we also had in-person meetings during that week so kids could get together and be together virtually uh, live instead of, you know, just having content that they looked at at their convenience, which was great, but they also loved getting together and talking to each other. They really, really missed that part. (coughs) Excuse me. They missed that part, uh, but we did a survey after Team Leader Conference, and the kids were very grateful to have that opportunity to talk to each other, um, at at the very least see each other's faces, uh, even though they couldn't be together. Fantastic. Uh, And I think in my mind, uh, the equivalent of the state FFA convention, which is a huge event, for FFA every year, of course, is the 4-H-O-Rama, right? And, right, right. And so that's your big annual event where you all come together. You say 15,000 are involved statewide. Well, you just inundate a conference center each year for your O-Rama. Uh, what has, how has, has the O-Rama been affected? Are you having to still wait and see if you can conduct it later this year? What's going to happen with that? Uh, it will not be conducted. It's normally conducted at the University of Arkansas Fayetteville campus, but they have closed down camps for the summer. So that is the the venue is mm. the only venue really that we could conduct our event at at, the, at this late notice to try to change yeah. it. So we are going virtual with that. But we're having we've been working with specialists to where we are having different talks and demonstrations. Okay. Uh, they they will. Uh, virtually and they'll upload those to youtube or a certain site and then we will have those judged and we'll still give out awards uh virtually we still have our awards of excellence ceremony is still planned not face to face but virtually where we'll have lots of video content from donors and from stakeholders who will try to give the kids a pep talk and and let them know that we're still rooting for them even though it's been an odd summer But the kids have been very resilient, and we've had great participation through those venues, uh, despite the fact that we're not having them the way that we normally do. We still plan on having some face-to-face contests that just are nearly impossible to hold virtually in in late fall at the 4-H Center. So hopefully when those uh, happen in late fall, we can can get together face-to-face and at least have some contests that way. But it's still to be held the last week of January, uh, virtually, and we hope that we'll have great participation there and get to recognize some kids for their hard project work. And hopefully the pandemic will ease a little bit uh, by then. We're all hoping that, so. you know, we won't have this big second wave we're seeing 
uh, you know, evidence of uh, more and more people being diagnosed with it right now, I think. But hopefully a lot of those are asymptomatic, and, and the governor and the state officials will all see that hopefully in five to six months we can get a little bit back to normal where we can have some more of these in-person meetings, right? I hope so. Our our leaders, our 4-H leaders and our 4-H kids are really ready to get back to where they can do some hands-on learning. You know, we're all about hands-on education uh, right. to make the best better and and doing with our hands. So we're we're ready to do that. But until then, we're going to do the best that we can to offer those opportunities virtually if we can. Have you heard anything yet about uh, how many of your 4-Hers uh, will or may not be allowed to participate in county fairs? I know many of them show animals, they raise animals, participate in the livestock shows, and we're nearing the season here very soon for county fair season to get started. So what's happening with that? Um, as far as I know, the St- Arkansas State Fair is still uh, – planning on having a fair i don't know to what extent i do think that um i do know that our kids have still been turning in their ear tags and um getting ready for that and working with their projects but i have not heard from the state fair board whether or not we'll be able to do that in person i have been hearing of several county fairs who have not um who have canceled but then i've also heard of some who have just canceled their carnival and are still planning on having some sort of uh show animals animal shows during the week but i just don't have any kind of ratio or any official list well that's very important yeah i know they're still having some national uh, livestock shows too that some of our kids have gone to they haven't gone there necessarily in the 4-h capacity but they've gone there um to show their animals and to show their projects and and hopefully they've gotten something out of that oh yeah yeah, and other states I've seen where some of those large animal or livestock <laughs> shows uh, have been conducted, right. and uh, and that's kind of a, a precursor to our county fair season here in Arkansas. Mm-hmm. They can come back home, and I know many of them, the county fair livestock shows uh, are hopefully just to prep for the state fair if we're still allowed to have a state fair livestock show, and I know those yeah. decisions are yet, kind of yet to be made, but mm-hmm. that's huge for a young It's people. hard to believe, isn't it? Oh. Hard to believe they might not have those, but and I know how hard all these kids work on their projects. And um, but I also know their resilience, and I know that uh, they'll come back stronger next year if they're not able to do it this year. Well, you always look for a silver lining out of all these situations. <laughs> we did not expect you know this to happen, and, and uh, but because young people are so tech savvy. Uh, they are all about social media. They know how to go online, and uh, they had to adapt to that with their uh, schooling back in the spring, of course. Uh, their education mm-hmm. at the end of the year had to be online. Have Have you seen any challenges with uh, lack of broadband in some of the more rural counties that you service uh, and just accessibility, uh, having uh, connectivity? I definitely have. Uh, I happen to – have a lot to do with our online enrollment system too which of course uses broadband and I've seen those challenges even before this pandemic through that even with some of our county offices it's difficult to get good broadband so that has been a real concern with us to try to be uh, for equality to try to reach these kids who don't necessarily have that broadband so we've had some kits that we've put together for camps where they we can mail them kits so they can still participate in camps 
um, and they can pick up those supplies at their county office or they can just be mailed straight to their door. But yes, that has certainly been on our minds and we've, we've tried to do, have different ways where we can reach those kids, uh, different packets we've had delivered, but uh, it, it is definitely uh, an issue. And I'm really hoping that after this that we will devote some more time to figuring out how to, to get those, the broadband out to more kids where we won't have this issue later. But it is a problem. Sure. And uh, we know that our congressional delegation uh, and state uh, general assembly is very aware of the need to expand broadband access. Uh, the governor's aware of it. And this pandemic mm-hmm. has just made that even more of a priority. So hopefully it we'll has. see, you know, more of that become available, especially when we get uh, schools ramped up again here in just a few weeks, it seems. Uh, once we get to mid-August, we're going to be starting another new school year, and they'll need access to that again. Right. Well, Angie, right. thank you so much for uh, explaining how 4-H is adapting to our new environment and uh, just, you know, promoting all that you do. It's a wonderful leadership development program, and you're uh, developing a lot of outstanding young people, aren't you? We are. I'm so proud of each and every one of them, and I appreciate the the opportunity to be here to speak with you today. And anytime you need to speak about 4-H, I'm here for you. Well, best of luck as you continue to go through the summer with your activities and into the fall, and we will look forward to working closely with you uh, there through the Cooperative Extension Service. Uh, We've been speaking with Angie Friel. Angie is the Associate Department Head for 4-H in Arkansas on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Finally, Greg Patterson talks to horticulture research professor Elena Garcia, who recently wrapped up a successful career at the University of Arkansas. She tells us about her efforts to help specialty crop farmers open new fruit, berry, and nut markets and improve existing markets with her research. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau, and on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, our guest is Dr. Elena Garcia. She is a horticulture professor of research for the University of Arkansas. And Dr. Garcia, welcome to the show. Thanks. And it is your last full day on the job, so I'm glad we got this interview in today. And and what I'd like to do is ask you about a great career, um, especially with the University of Arkansas and the research that you've done, and, and what are some of the highlights of of your career? Well, first of all, when I uh, came back to Arkansas, uh, the, the position of uh, uh, research and extension for fruit production had been vacant for several uh, years. So my first objective was to get the growers, the fruit growers in the state, to get to know me and get to know that we, that we were here to help, that if they had questions, they could uh, come to us and ask those questions. And so I uh, really, uh, there were a couple of groups that I uh, uh, made a lot of inroads and a lot of success, and one was the Blueberry Growers Association of the state. Uh, We worked with them. We had several grants to work with them. They were having some serious production issues, so we were trying to figure out what the issues were. Uh, And then I also got to work with the pecan growers, now, the pecan growers, uh, they, that was an industry, a group that literally no one had worked with them uh, since the late 70s. So, right. again, coming in and working with them, trying to uh, let them know that we were here to help, 
we were able to help them uh, create an association. But we also got uh, received several grants to help with, uh, again, the production system. Why um, doing research, Arkansas was considered one of the least efficient production systems in, uh, for pecans. So, again, trying to figure out why was the production efficiency so low uh, for pecans in the state? And then what could we do to help them improve that efficiency? And then later, um, a few years later, I got into um, protected agriculture, specifically high tunnel production. And again, trying to get growers, Arkansas, with is, um, such a variable, uh, varied climate that can change uh, the weather can change from hour to hour. So having uh, crops in a high tunnel while they are protected has been a very, very good, successful um, research priority uh, for me. Now, now tell us about some of the high tunnel work you did, because that obviously allowed uh, folks to um, extend their growing season on the front end and the back end. And, and what was some of the work with high tunnel that you've accomplished? Well, two, two areas in the high tunnel that I've worked with, uh, that was strawberries. And so we did several research projects trying to figure out what cultivars perform best in the tunnel, but also trying to figure out what um, some of the, the pests that are um, more prevalent in the tunnel but not outside the tunnel. Uh, such as spider mites, and uh, and also my last project was working with biopesticides in the tunnel for strawberry production. As we um, as the consumers are demanding more uh, organic production, this was an area that um, we were looking into uh, to uh, try to prevent diseases in insects using biopesticides rather than using synthetic pesticides, especially on strawberries that are considered very high, uh, contain a very high pest, uh, res pesticide residue. And so trying to, you know, get uh, the farmers to um, uh, use some of this, um, uh, this biopesticides so they can then tell their their clientele that hey these are these don't have the the uh, residues that you might be scared of uh, uh, eating when you are uh, consuming strawberries. The other project that I was uh, we were very very successful and it was just kind of started. Um, I had an empty high tunnel and I decided to do a to plant uh, some of uh, the Arkansas release table grapes, which right. Yeah, to me they are wonderful. They have a wonderful taste, and but if growers are not growing them in the area in, in the region because um, it is um, uh, the again the diseases and the insects when you grow them outside uh, are quite uh, enormous. But uh, and so the inputs are very high when you grow them outside. So the idea was to test whether growing them inside would be a, uh, a um, feasible alternative. And overall, we found out that, yes, it is a feasible alter alternative. There, uh, there are a lot of unanswered questions. And, and we were, technically speaking, the first ones 
in the United States or uh, to do this research. So as I said, we did not answer all the questions that we had. Uh, just like any research project, you usually end up having more questions that you have. Exactly. And so that was the case, but we were able to demonstrate that, yes, it can be done, and, yes, you can reduce the amount of pesticides, uh, and, yes, you can improve the food quality. So overall, I think this was a very successful uh, grant. We were able to put out some um, fact sheets, uh, a lot of workshops, and also I was, uh, uh, we involved a grower in Cabot, and um, uh, he, he donated the space, one of the high tunnels in his farm, and so we planted some uh, grapes. And this is sometimes when you do research at a research facility, that's a, a very controlled, you know, exactly what you're doing when you're doing it. Right. However, when you do research from farm, you have to kind of now look at the farmer and see what uh, their needs are and how they are dealing with the situation. So it was a very good um, uh, grant that uh, allowed us to not only do research at the research station in Fayetteville, but also do research in, on, on farm research so that we could demonstrate to the grower, hey, yes, this can be done, or no, it couldn't be done. So uh, in, in talking with the grower, he, uh, you know, when we left, I said, okay, the grapes are yours now. Um, you do whatever you want to do. Uh, do you want to keep them? If you don't, we can come back and remove them for you. And he said, no, no, he was going to keep them because he has <laughs> a roadside stand. And, he right. sells them. and so this is, again, one way to, to uh, attract customers. This is a niche, right, because not that many growers in the state have Arkansas table grapes. So, yeah, that, that was how I say. I, I feel I'm going out uh, with a very successful um, uh, ending, a very successful grant uh, that was uh, from the Southern SARE um, uh, Research in, in, uh, in Education Grant. And so we were able to, to accomplish a lot through this grant. Now, I think one of the things you found out, too, which was interesting, was in growing the table grapes, the Arkansas varieties that, that you put in the high tunnel, you got grapes right away. Yes, and that, I'm glad you mentioned that. Again, if you plant this outside, you plant, I said, you planted them this spring, 2020, it would be uh, summer 2022 before you get a, any um, uh, yields, any, any harvest. Uh, we were amazingly surprised that we, let's say we planted, let's say if you planted in 2020, you would get a yield next year in 2021. Again, this is a perennial crop, and uh, if a grower has to borrow money to to um, to to put, let's say, an acre of grapes, uh, he has to go to the bank and borrow money, uh, then you know, it'll be three years before uh, he or she starts getting any revenues back. This right. way, the following year can make uh, revenues for that farmer. So that was a very uh, good, uh, uh, good a very uh, promising result that we saw. So what does the future hold for you as you go into retirement? Are you, are you still going to be involved in research? It's got to be hard to leave research that's that's not completed yet, yet at the same time, 
you've been so successful with your team that you've worked with that I, I got to believe you're going to keep doing some stuff even in retirement, even if it's in your backyard. Well, you know, um, I, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, um, I'm going to go show how to prune some of the grapes uh, in the tunnel tomorrow. But overall, I think I'm going to uh, take off for a few months. I, I have done uh, volunteer agriculture, volunteer work through USAID in right. foreign countries, and I really enjoy doing that. So, um but again, right now, no, not travel, nothing is going because of the COVID-19. But I think right. once things settle down a little bit, uh, my name is out there with uh, volunteer organizations. And, you know, you go to these countries and you basically put your knowledge to use, all your knowledge, depending on, on your assignment. I have worked with blackberry growers. I have worked with peach growers. I have worked with apple growers. And so there's... Uh, um, uh, I feel that that's, uh, for the time being, I feel that volunteer work, I think, is going to suit me really well because when you do this type of volunteer work, you have to do a lot of preparation. You have to prepare um, uh, presentations. You have to do all these things that will keep me busy. And then once you are there, you stay there for at least 21 days, work in work with indigent farmers. And it's a very rewarding type of um uh, work. So, I'm, I'm, I, like I said, once I think once things settle down a little bit, we we'll get get back to some more normal times. I think that that's where I'm. I plan. That's what I plan to do in in the near future. Not to say that there, you know, an opportunity arises uh, to work directly with uh, with other, you know, with the with industries in the United States. Not to say I'm not. I would. Uh, I would not do it, but right now I think that's kind of the plan. Well, Dr. Elena Garcia, any final thoughts um, as you ride off into the sunset tomorrow with your retirement? I <laughs> know. <laughs> uh, I think. I think. You know, um, when I came, I was basically the only person working on specialty crops. Uh, we had a very part-time person working on uh, with with me uh, on on insects and now you know extension in the re uh, in the experimentation now we have uh, a um, a horticulture person working on special crops an IPM person that's her his full-time job um, working in, in uh, uh, so I feel that um, my major contribution in a way was has been to to in increase the um, visibility of specialty crops in the state and therefore the the um, priorities of the, of the division of agriculture into uh, specialty crops. Well, I have been on numerous farms, um, whether it's blackberry, blueberry, strawberry, pecan, peaches, uh, you name it, on the specialty crop list. I've, I've covered and done stories on it. And your name comes up oftentimes with a, a big thank you from the growers out there for the University of Arkansas Extension System and the research that was done, um, you know, whether it's grapes, whatever it happened to be. So there's a, a lot of satisfaction that you can retire with. And we wish you the best of luck uh, with yeah. your travels when you get to travel again. And I know USAID is a great organization and you'll do 
a fine job, uh, you know, volunteering with them too. Well, thanks. I truly enjoy myself when I'm working with farmers. So there's, uh, uh, I'm going to miss that for sure for a while. So, mm-hmm. but well, we've, been, we, we've been visiting today with Dr. Elena Garcia at the University of Arkansas. She's been in specialty crops and horticulture research, wrapping up a great career with the University of Arkansas. And we wish you the best. Okay, well, thank you very much. The same to you and the same to everyone. Thanks. That's all for another Arkansas AgCast. Thanks for joining us. Check back next Thursday for more and have a great Independence Day.